Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, the book of Hosea, chapters three and four. Well, as we continue with Hosea chapter three today, perhaps this is an appropriate moment to remind you that much like a parable, we have to be careful not to read into this prophetic narrative more than was intended. We're dealing with an actual account of what Hosea was told by the Word and what he did, yet at the same time the point of it all was symbolic in order to send a divine message to Ephraim Israel. So, the words have been laid down in a mixed literary style, almost certainly at the hand of a hired scribe, and it involves poetry, it involves metaphor, it involves irony, it involves illustration, hyperbole, more. Thus, since the point is to get a symbolic message across, then details are slanted and engineered to accomplish that purpose. And thus we shouldn't look for precision. It's the bigger picture that matters. And at the same time, we are challenged with the hard reality that this prophecy of Hosea was fashioned within an 8th century BC Middle Eastern culture and aimed towards the people who lived within that culture. The recipients were intended as the residents and the leaders of the ten tribes that formed the northern kingdom called Israel, and alternately Ephraim. However, as with all divine instruction, the God principles that are embedded in Hosea's prophecy and, and their application can and do transcend time and culture. So, let's reread this rather short chapter 3. Open your Bibles there to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Adonai said to me, Go once more and show love to this wife of yours who's been loved by her boyfriend, to this adulteress, just as Adonai loves the people of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes offered to them. So I bought her back for myself with fifteen pieces of silver and eight bushels of barley, and then I told her, You are to remain in seclusion for a long time and be mine. You're not to be a prostitute. You're not to be with any other man. I won't come in to have sex with you either, for the people of Israel are going to be in seclusion for a long time, without a king, a prince, sacrifice, standing stone, ritual vest, or household gods. And afterwards the people of Israel will repent, and seek Adonai their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Adonai in his goodness in the Acherit Hayamin. That's the world to come. Okay. <clears throat> we can only conclude that this wife of whoredom, Gomer, whom Hosea had, had married some time earlier, and she was not a prostitute at that time, indeed for some reason left Hosea and engaged in some kind of an adulterous affair. Or perhaps for whatever her reason she lost her way and she took up prostitution as a profession. Now we don't need to get terribly concerned over whichever it was, because the point is she became unfaithful to Hosea. And this was immediately likened to the second half of verse 1, to how the people of Israel had become unfaithful to Jehovah. Now, all along 
the actual crime being committed by Israel is idolatry by mixing up their worship of the God of Israel with their worship of Baal, including apparently much of the Baal worship system. Now, although I've addressed this in earlier lessons, and we're going to do it again in future lessons, I want to editorialize for a few minutes, not so much so we can point fingers and help beat up Gomer or ancient Israel, but rather because, as sad and gut-wrenching as it is for me to expose, it accurately reflects the dangerous infection that the faith of Christ promoted has now been struck with this terrible disease, if you would, since the first century, an infection of syncretism. And so now, unwittingly, operating predominantly on man-made doctrine, in fact, the same had already infected the Hebrew faith by Yeshua's day. Matthew 15, verses 3 through 9 say this, He answered, Indeed, why do you break the commandment of God by your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone says to his father or mother, I have promised to give to God what I might have used to help you, then he's rid of his duty to honor his father and mother. Thus by your tradition you make null and void the word of God, you hypocrites. Yeshiao, Isaiah, was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. Now, we've all been infected by man-made doctrine and we're in need of a remedy. Like the proverbial frog in the kettle, Things like this do not happen overnight. Error and evil creeps in slowly, stealthily, but never think it's accidental. It is quite purposeful, and it's always leader-led. King Jeroboam of Israel had an agenda. He had an agenda of making his people loyal to him alone, and this begins with making his kingdom prosperous. A kingdom or a nation must be at peace with its neighbors to allow the conditions for prosperity to flourish. So in those days, as it is presently, treaties and accommodations are made with neighboring nations to establish and maintain that peace. Now, as of the time that this lesson was created, Russia had attacked Ukraine, and they are at war as the world wrings its collective hands in a state of shock and anxiety. And the result is that both nations are suffering economically, and due to the connectedness of the world today, all of the world's economies have taken a hit, and so the world's overall prosperity is in danger. In ancient times, the religion practiced by a nation played an integral role in everyday life and in politics. And so the treaties among nations necessarily involved respect for one another's God systems. Jeroboam also had the problem that he wanted his subjects to stay within his kingdom to practice their religion, to not travel to their sister kingdom that lay to the south, the kingdom of Judah, because he didn't want divided loyalties. Yet it was in Judah where Jerusalem and the temple were located, which the law of Moses dictated was to be the one and only temple to Jehovah that was to be built, the one and only place 
of ritual sacrifice was to occur, the one and only place where the God-ordained priesthood was to operate, and where the one and only priesthood was to be comprised of Levites that had been set apart for service to God. Now the circumstance was a major fly in the ointment for King Jeroboam. So he decided to break away from the ancient Hebrew faith of Abraham and then Moses, and instead created a unique, customized, and blended religion for his people with its own new holy places, its own new and separate priesthood. This had the effect of appeasing his Gentile treaty partners as he folded in aspects of their religion, Baal worship. He began with fashioning golden calves and declaring them images of Jehovah. So from that point forward, it became easier for the people to accept more and other God images, idols, and specifically to incorporate the God images of the Baal system. The thing we should grasp and internalize is that while Jeroboam had an agenda, he was fulfilling that was in no way righteous, in all of his power and authority, he spun it to his people that it was. Over time, his people learned to accept it, stop questioning and to believe it. And within a generation or so, this newly fashioned religion became the norm for Israel. Apparently, with few asking if what they were doing was right in God's eyes. Now those in Israel who pushed back, those such as Hosea, they were branded as heretics. It was assumed that this new religion must be right. Why? Well, because they're new priesthood. Hey, the religious experts. Their political leadership. They all said it was right. And because most Israelites were going along with it. See, this brings us to a question that as believers, we truly need to ask ourselves. Whatever became of original Orthodox Christianity, a 100% Jewish movement as we find it in the Bible. The reality is, I don't have to speculate. How we got here from there is quite well documented. When Gentile leadership took over, the fully legitimate faith movement of Christ and His disciples, things changed. Within 200 years of Christ's death, the religion called Christianity began to break away from the Holy Scriptures and from its Hebraic heritage, and a new holy book had been created called the New Testament. The Old Testament was all but phased out. All the observances and ways of worship that were ordained by divine commandment of the Holy Scriptures these were officially abolished by written decree in the 4th century by a council of bishops representing the now dominant Rome-based church. The still existing records of the church councils of Nicaea and Laodicea lay it all out. There in those records we discover a determined agenda, agenda of the Gentile leadership to take over full control of this rapidly spreading faith in Jesus with the adherence to it at that time numbering well into the hundreds of thousands, and to do so for their own benefit. This meant rewriting history, refuting the original Orthodox faith in Christ, 
and creating an essentially new religion to replace it that bore little resemblance to its true beginnings. And within a generation or so after this decree, there was widespread acceptance among the Gentile followers of Jesus, and so it became the norm. Now, over the centuries, as other ambitious men with agendas sought their own religious power bases, Christianity eventually fractured into literally a few thousand denominations as it is today. Now, while what I've told you is recorded, it's available for you all to go see, then a glaring question is, are church leaders today asking themselves, asking ourselves, are we being properly obedient to God and to His commandments? Is what we practice biblically correct? Yes, most will claim. Because even though we may have long ago subtracted the Old Testament, added some elements of pagan religious religions to the faith of Christ, it was done for good reasons. And besides, we have changed the use and meaning of those formerly pagan elements into righteous worship of God and to praise Jesus. So, when someone like myself, and there are a growing number of others, questions the rightness of some of our faith beliefs and ways of worship, certainly not all, we are sometimes labeled as heretics. Now, I, for one, accept that label, because as it concerns man-made religious doctrines and paganized worship practices, I am indeed a heretic. In fact, I ask you to join the heresy to that kind of religious practice by doing our best to rediscover our faith roots and returning to a God-ordained, Spirit-filled, Bible-based faith. The same one that Yeshua practiced and taught to His disciples. The same one that foretold of and produced our Lord and Savior. Now, this sorrowful situation that our faith institutions have fallen into is precisely what the Word was communicating to Hosea about Israel. There isn't much difference other than the era in which it is occurring. And just as with Israel, when soon the common people will suffer exile, it will be because their leadership has failed them by leading them astray. Now, I say this as one who's been part of the church my entire life. Even though a goodly part of the church likely thinks I have, or wishes I would, abandon it. Now, I pray and I ask you to pray for revelation, for repentance, and reformation, but not destructive revolution. Hosea's prophecy, as with nearly all prophecy, is fulfilled, and then later it happens again under similar circumstances. Well, those with ears here. Okay, in verse 2, Hosea obeys God, and he goes after this unfaithful wife, even paying someone so that he can bring her home. However, verse 3 shows that the old secular proverb of forgive and forget doesn't accurately reflect how God operates. Hosea, at God's direction, loves this woman, and he forgives her sufficiently to pay a price, to redeem her from all of her fallen ways, but at the same time, her sinful deeds cannot be easily forgotten. 
we see that she's going to pay a dreadful price for her folly, and she's not going to be allowed all the typical benefits that a wife can expect. This is explained in graphic, highly sexualized terms. Now remember, the way this story is constructed is so that Israel understands that this prophecy built around Hosea's family is symbolic of what God is going to do with the people of the Northern Kingdom. Gomer is going to be placed into seclusion at home. Actually, this restriction is somewhat par for the course for a woman who has shamed herself or her husband. The shamed woman was not allowed out to wander the streets. Further, their seclusion and, and, and this, rather, this seclusion and shaming, and in Gomer's case, can be likened to house arrest, largely for her own good. Now, Hosea says that she is to be mine and no longer a prostitute. That is, she will be returned to a monogamous relationship with him and then prevented from fraternizing with other men. This is expressed by not allowing her to continue to share sexual flavors with anyone other than Hosea, her husband. But Hosea says that despite bringing her home, he will not accommodate her normal female desires of intimacy with her husband. So to use the modern vernacular, she's cut off. This is punishment. At the same time, I see it like a treatment of, course, uh, of sorts. It's, I kind of liken her to a drug addict. And the only way for an addict to kick the habit is to stop doing the addictive behavior. I see it this way because there is no explanation provided as to why this married woman would leave her husband become so promiscuous. May she have been thrown out by Hosea? Had she become sexually dissatisfied in their relationship? Even so, men were obligated to support their wives, whether they liked their wives or not. So whatever her reason for being away from Hosea, and adopting this shameful lifestyle that she did, it certainly wasn't because she was escaping some desperate situation, at least so far as we know. She entered into or caused this adulterous life because that's what she sought after. Perhaps not unlike the prodigal son. Now we also need to notice that kind of from a 30,000 foot view, Hosea's intent was not to bring Gomer home to harm her, but rather to rehabilitate and protect her, even though severe discipline was certainly part of that rehabilitation. He wanted her to stop her sinning ways before it went even further. Now, I adopt this view and explanation because, in the end, it is God's character that's being expressed through Hosea's actions, and it is Israel's character that is being expressed through Gomer's actions. So then verse 4 makes the direct symbolic connection of why and what Hosea is going to do with Gomer to what God is going to do with Israel. It says that, like Gomer, Israel too will suffer seclusion, and then six separate things are listed that Israel will be forced to do without. First, they will have no king. This, of course, means no Hebrew, no Israelite king. This also means that Israel will not be a nation. And without a nation, their societal framework is dissolved. They will also be without what is usually translated as a prince. But I think that misses the point in modern English. The Hebrew is Tsar, 
And in this use, it more means a government official, a government agent of some sort. So, lest Israel think they'll be without a Hebrew king, but still under some type of Hebrew government rule, led by an official instead of a king, that thought should be abandoned. And since we know in hindsight that Israel would fall under the rule of Assyria, and then the Israelites would be scattered to many Gentile nations, this prophecy proved to be quite accurate. Now, while the first two consequences Israel will face involves government, now the next four involves the practicing of their religion. They will be without sacrifice. This means they will not be able to perform sacrificial ritual, which had many purposes. And the biblical Hebrew faith has at its core sacrifice. But so do virtually all pagan religions. Even though what Israel has been practicing for at least a century was not right, it was not righteous, what two of these next four restrictions are speaking of is elements of the proper Orthodox Biblical Hebrew faith. So Israel will not be able to immediately return to what is right in effective worship, which is essentially the most important component of having a relationship with God. At the same time, we see Israel, uh, rather, we see God is going to keep them away from important pagan ritual worship elements. Now, the pillar or the standing stone that they were accustomed to incorporating in their own worship was a standard item that was erected like a monument at the many scattered pagan sacred shrines. Standing stones were connected to whatever deity that particular shrine was glorifying. In the Torah, we read this, Deuteronomy 16, verses 21 and 22. You are not to plant any sort of tree as a sacred pole beside the altar of Adonai your God that you will make for yourselves. Likewise, do not set up a standing stone. Adonai your God hates such things. So the use of these standing stones is specifically prohibited by the law. Next, the text shifts back to something that is legitimate, the ephod that was worn by the high priest. This was a special garment that seemed to have a pouch sewn into it in order to hold the Urim and Tumim stones. No one knows precisely how these stones operated, but they apparently provided yes and no answers from God to questions brought before him by the high priest. After that, that item, we go back to something pagan, teraphim. Teraphim. That was the common name used for images and idols used by Baal worshippers. So here we have been presented with Israel's customized, blended, syncretized, and thus idolatrous worship practices laid out, almost item by item. Israel rationalized their use of these pagan worship practices and objects by melding them into their worship of Jehovah. But Jehovah rejected it. The truly terrifying thing for Israel is that God says this so-called seclusion they are going to endure is going to go on for a long time. And indeed it has been a long time because only recently have the descendants of those ten tribes begun their journey back to their homeland. Now to try to illustrate what is happening to Israel and, and to try to make it more, more real and, and, and impactful and, and personal for us and our faith, I'm going to give you some examples as illustrations that have full parallels 
and what God is accusing Israel of having done. Now, although they are found in the countless standard Christian depictions of heaven and angels and even of biblical characters, the saints, halos are not found in the Bible. So, where did halos come from? They were borrowed from the regular sun disk symbol of the Mishraim sun god worship system that was prevalent in the Roman Empire before, during, and after the councils of Lycia and Laodicea that created the foundation for Gentile Christianity. Rabbits and eggs, as used at Easter, were and remain strictly fertility symbols of pagan religions and can be found nowhere in Orthodox biblical worship practices. Fir trees, often decorated, were also standard at pagan worship sites. The trees weren't necessarily worshipped, rather they were meant to honor the presence of Ashtoreth, who was thought to be Baal's wife. And as we just read, this use of fir trees and religious activity for God's people was specifically outlawed by the Torah. Now, just as Israel had incorporated some of these attractive and, and common pagan things into their worship of Jehovah, seeing no harm in it, seems so has Christianity fallen victim to this temptation. Both groups claim that what was, what was formerly bad and disobedient is now good and holy. Verse 5, however, brings some good news. Back and forth, we read of wrong actions and then consequences, and then God comforting Israel by telling them, telling them these consequences aren't going to be permanent. He gives them hope that at the proper moment in history, as determined by Him, these sanctions against Israel will be lifted, and their national relationship with Him will be reborn as they are returned to the land they were exiled from. In other words, God does not sentence Israel to destruction or divorce. Rather, Israel will fully and finally recognize their guilt, recognize the depth of their deprivation by serving other gods, and repent of it. And at that time, God will set them on a path to full redemption and a restored relationship with Him. But then we get another amazing prophecy that has long been recognized by Judaism and Christianity as belonging to the end times. It says that not only will Israel seek Jehovah, they will also seek David, their king. Interesting. And I have real doubts that those of the Northern Kingdom took this very literally, although I'm sure that the inhabitants of Judah happily did, even though this prophecy was not directly connected to them. I mean, as far as Israel was concerned, a rebirth of David's dynasty would be good news for the Southern Kingdom, but not for the Northern Kingdom. David belonged to the tribe of Judah and therefore to the kingdom of Judah. Nonetheless, Jews in Christ's day understood that this mention of King David was speaking about a Messiah that would come from David's royal line and not of David himself. They didn't believe in reincarnation. By the time of Hosea, David had been, David had been dead for over 200 years. But let's be careful not to confuse the recognition of Yeshua as that Davidic King Messiah by some Galileans and Judeans and a few others in the first century with who Hosea's prophecy is speaking about. Hosea is speaking about the ten tribes that were still scattered in Christ's era and had yet to begin their journeys home. This can only be speaking then about Christ's second advent, Messiah Yeshua's return 
or at least the years that immediately lead up to it. So when I stand at Ben Gurion Airport and watch flights with scores of members of those 10 exiled Israelite tribes migrating to modern Israel from far-flung nations in Asia and Africa, man, it gives me the chills. Are we witness? Think about this. Are we witness to the ten tribes at last emerging from their seclusion as promised 27 centuries ago? Well, certainly someone's going to be. And I think it's us. Now let's move on to Hosea chapter 4. Open your Bibles back up to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. It's a little longer. We're going to read it all. Hosea chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear the word of Adonai, people of Israel. For Adonai has a grievance against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, no knowledge of God in the land, only swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds with one blood crime following another. Therefore the land mourns and everyone living there languishes. Wild animals too, birds in the air, even the fish in the sea are removed. But no one should quarrel or rebuke because your people are having to quarrel with the priests. Therefore you will stumble by day and the prophet will stumble with you at night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for want of knowledge because you rejected knowledge. I will also reject you as priest for me. Because you forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increased in number, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for their crimes. But the priest will fare no better than the people. I'll punish him for his ways, pay him back for his deeds. They will eat but not have enough and consort with whores but have no children because they stopped listening to Adonai, whoring and wine, both old and new. Take away my people's wits. My people consult their piece of wood. Their diviner's wand speaks to them. For the spirit of whoring makes them err. They go off whoring, deserting their God. They sacrifice on the mountain peaks, and they offer incense on the hills and under oaks and poplars and pistachio trees because they give good shade. Therefore your daughters behave like whores, and your daughters-in-law commit adultery. I'm not going to punish your daughters when they act like whores, or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery, because the men are themselves going off with whores and sacrificing with prostitutes. Yes, a people without understanding will come to ruin. Now if you, Israel, prostitute yourself, still Judah has no need to incur such guilt. Don't go up to Gilgal or to Beethoven. Don't swear as Adonai lives, for Israel is stubborn as a stubborn cow. Will Israel now feed them like a lamb in a big pasture? Ephraim's joined to idols. Let him alone. When they finish carousing, they start their whoring. Their rulers deeply love dishonor. The wind will carry them off in its wings and their sacrifices bring them nothing but shame. Now chapter 4 brings us back to a legal court setting using legal court terminology with God as the accuser and the judge. Now this chapter can be divided into four sections for the purpose of study. The first three sections each make accusations against a specific group of Israel. The fourth section is about the prophesied fall of the false cult that Israel's leaders had created and the people had been blindly following. Now, <clears throat> for those of us who are the leaders of those who trust in Jesus, 
we need to closely notice that the blame for what Israel has brought Israel to this dreadful condition and the calamity they're about to experience, it's all placed squarely on the shoulders of the religious leadership. The leadership. I'm not sure there's a book in the Bible, Old Testament or New, that doesn't somewhere along the way speak of the leadership of the people and the great responsibility and accountability that God places upon the shoulders of the leaders that He has set in place. Why? Because poor leadership will lead God's people into much harm and an estranged relationship with Yahweh. You know, sometimes we lose sight that nearly everything God ordains is not so much accomplished supernaturally as it is carried out by humans. For instance, God wants His people to learn about who He is, what His ways and commands to us are, but He gives that responsibility to leaders to teach it to the people. God wants His people to have good examples to follow so they can see how His ways are to operate on earth. This must necessarily be accomplished by humans, not by angels. God wants His people protected from harm, from evil. More often than not, this is accomplished by armies of human warriors. Even so, individuals are held accountable for accepting what poor leadership teaches them. God did not create robots. So the contention that God has with Israel is that this unfaithfulness of Israel has happened because of the sins of the priesthood. God makes it clear that because of them, His people have been led to indulge in wickedness instead of the leadership stopping them. Verse 1 begins, Hear the word of Jehovah. Now the first word of those opening words is regularly translated as listen. Listen. Or taken to mean that, listen, but it ought not be. In the original Hebrew it is Shema. Shema means to hear in order to obey. Hear and obey and obey are organically connected. This isn't about passive listening. This is not about a passive listening experience because Shema inherently includes an active response from the ones who have heard. Now, after that, we again get the Hebrew Dabar, the word. This is not the word as in a speech or what's written down as text. It is the word as in a special living manifestation of God. But the context of the authority behind what the word communicates is not his own. It's Jehovah's. The word is the mediator. He's the agent between Jehovah and the prophet. So, let's reword this dynamically according to the Hebrew thought that's being communicated. It's this, hear and respond to what you receive from the Word, the divine agent of Jehovah. That's what's being communicated. Who is to hear and respond? The Israelites. The Israelites and their leaders, meaning the ten northern tribes of Israel. Now this represents the first accusation of God as prosecutor, and it is against the inhabitants of the land. The land, once again, this is the northern kingdom. The inhabitants of the land means the entire population and society. What's the problem? In Hebrew, it is the lack of emet 
chesed and da'at. Or it is typically translated, no truth, no mercy, no knowledge. Now in this context, the better choice of English words is no faithfulness, no loving kindness, and no knowledge. See, here's the thing. The Hebrew word chesed is another of those complex Hebrew concepts that is expressed in a single Hebrew word. Chesed certainly can entail mercy and kindness and goodness, but those terms all come bundled together under the umbrella of faithfulness to God. So, the Hebrew concept of chesed inherently involves one of a joint and complementary relationship between God and man. Now, knowing this, then the first word in the series, emet, would be better translated as faithfulness rather than truth. And knowledge, da'at, the third in the series, this comes as the result of knowledge of God, His name, His commandments, His character. None of these three godly attributes that ought to exist in Israel due to the expected reciprocal relationship between Israel and God actually do. This is not unlike what Yeshua's New Testament statement about false prophets and false prophecy is addressing. In Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, we read, Beware of the false prophets. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Well, Israel, the ten tribes' fruit, bears no resemblance to a people who have supposedly pledged their loyalty and allegiance to Jehovah God of Israel and to their covenants with Him. Their idolatrous worship of Baal, Israel's bad fruit, proves that they had no loyalty or allegiance to Jehovah despite their, their, their urgent pleadings that they do. Now, in verse 1, we have accusations of omission, no faithfulness, no loving kindness, no knowledge of God. Then in verse 2, we have accusations of commission, swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery. Now, each one of these is a specific violation of one or the other of the Ten Commandments. Swearing probably means making a vow, using God's name as the guarantor, but then doing it falsely. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Lying, killing, stealing, committing adultery, we find all these in Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, the last words of Hosea 4.2 are that bloodshed follows bloodshed. That means that murder begets more murder. This was especially so in Hosea's era, when revenge killing was more or less the way of justice. That was at least partly why the sanctuary cities were created. Revenge killings 
would invariably lead to deadly blood feuds that might go on for generations between families. This has direct connection to the next verse, especially with the opening words, because verse 3 begins with, therefore, on account of, the land mourns. And from there the verse speaks about how everything associated with the land suffers. Even the birds that fly over it and the fish in its lake and, and the coastal sea. The law of Moses in the Torah addresses this exact thing. In Numbers 35, verses 31 through 34, also you are not to accept a ransom in lieu of the life of a murderer condemned to death. Rather, he must be put to death. Likewise, you are not to accept for someone who has fled to his city of refuge a ransom that would allow him to return to his land before the death of the priest. In this way, you will not defile the land in which you are living, for blood defiles the land. And in this land, no atonement can be made for the blood shed in it except the blood of him who shed it. No, you are not to defile the land in which you live and in which I live. For I, Adonai, live among the people of Israel. Now what is being explained is that blood, meaning unjustifiable killing, murder, in which the killer is not brought to justice and himself executed, has the lasting effect of polluting the land. Therefore, going back to Hosea 4.3, the land of the northern kingdom mourns, now that's figuratively speaking, because of all the bloodshed that has not been properly brought to justice and dealt with. Now, I realize that this issue of executing a murderer has become a sensitive one. Modern Western societies have used any number of reasons to justify why execution of a murderer ought not to happen. And what this reasoning all falls back on, primarily church leaders leading it, is that we've decided that our human definition of mercy and justice overrides God's definition of mercy and justice. Word is said that this new way that Jesus ordained overrides it. The consequences of carrying out this wrong reasoning is that it leaves law-abiding people vulnerable to repeat violent criminals. And it defies God after he's told us what must be done with murderers. And that of all crimes, not executing a murderer leaves the land itself defiled, and then this produces many negative consequences. Now let's face it, does hardly a day go by that we don't hear of a jailed murderer attacking or killing a, a prison guard or another Inmate, it doesn't even make the front page any longer, so frequently does it happen. The killers themselves will tell you that there's utterly no deterrent to stop them, because the worst that can happen is to receive another life sentence to go along with the one he already has. I mean, what's the difference between one life sentence and ten? Apparently, Israel was not dealing with murderers justly. And this has negatively affected the land itself, the birds, the animals that dwell on the land, even the fish in the sea. In other words, Israel's sin of not properly dealing with blood crimes and blood criminals in the way Jehovah commands affects all three spheres of nature and life on earth, the land, the sky, and the water. Now verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 uses a lot of words to say essentially one simple thing. The priest 
and the people behave the same, and they've adopted the same character. So no individual has the right to say, hey, we're not evil like those priests. And the priests have no right to say, hey, we're not evil like the people. There's plenty of blame and responsibility to go around for the absolutely abominable condition Israel has literally brought itself into. So, in verse 5, God says to the priests in general, you will stumble by day, and to the prophets of the land, you will stumble at night. Now this is called a couplet. And the obvious implication is that the many prophets roaming around the northern kingdom are seen by God as being false. And so equally as at fault and corrupt is the priesthood. These prophets did what they did for money, preying upon the people. I think the best way to apprehend the point is to see priest and prophet as together representing the entirety of the clergy, if you would, of Israel. The entirety of Israel's religious leadership and authority. It's not surprising that God would condemn the prophets. Since, if they practiced the state religion right along with everybody else, it didn't matter which God or gods they claimed they were prophets of. They were certainly not Jehovah's prophets. So just as the priests of the northern kingdom were not legitimate priests for God, neither were the prophets legitimate prophets for God. Now, I'm not certain what the command that ends that verse, I will destroy your mother, means exactly. Some scholars think it's a corruption of the text. That's certainly possible, because those words are difficult to decipher. On the other hand, assuming that those words are authentic, then one thing is for certain. The corrupt priests and prophets are characterized as having a common mother. So, mother might be an expression that refers to the source of evil that birthed this entire corrupt religious system and all their leadership. Otherwise, I just don't know what it means. Now, verse 6, strong statement for the cause of Israel's fall needs to be nailed to the front door of every church and synagogue in the world <laughs> so that all of us who've been given the task of leading God's flock remembers it. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for want of knowledge. Because you rejected knowledge, I'll also reject you as priest for me. Because you forgot the Torah of your God, I will also forget your children. Why would God's people not have correct knowledge of Him? Because the priests and the prophets, those who were assigned the job of teaching, rejected that knowledge themselves. How can a leader of a congregation reject some or perhaps all of God's holy scriptures, and then turn around and claim he knows God. Because these religious leaders of Ephraim Israel have adopted this attitude, God rejects them as priests for him. And why have they adopted such a ridiculous attitude in the first place? It answers the question. Because they forgot the Torah of Jehovah. See, the sense of the term forgot doesn't so much mean an unintentional lack of memory or recall as it does to intentionally turn their backs on what has been given to them. Therefore, God will turn His back on them and on Israel. Now, even if most Bible versions don't use the term Torah, which, by the way, is indeed the original Hebrew of this, and instead inserts the term law, which is not a good translation of the word Torah, the bottom line is the same. After listing several of the Ten Commandments that the people regularly broke, 
and then refusing to follow God's justice system for murderers, as found in the Torah, the law, God essentially says that it was always available for them, but they rejected it, and therefore they taught something man-made instead. I find it ironic that the church likes to tell its congregants that they are the new priesthood of God, but then turn around and not teach this new priesthood the Torah of God. God says here that because those who think of themselves as priests reject His Torah and so don't teach His Torah, then they do not have actual knowledge of Jehovah God. They just don't have it. Interestingly, the same thought comes from Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Don't think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a ute or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We'll continue in Hosea chapter 4 next time.